Welcome to the Joe Watt Podcast. I am Joe Vendramini from the University of Florida Range Cattle Research and Education Center. And today we are in Deer Park, Florida at the Deseret Ranch. And our guest is Mr. Eric Jacobson. Eric, thanks for being with us today. Good to be here. Um, Eric, I would like to touch in some points with you about your your management and mm -hmm. and I'd like you to to start introducing yourself, your career and um, something about your company. Okay. All right. Um, so Joe, currently I'm president uh, or title my title is president of Desert Ranches and um, what that encompasses is for the most part all the cattle holdings that the company has within North America. And um, I actually grew up in Central Florida in Lakeland and, and started started my career really at um, at University of Florida, you know, went to school, got a degree in animal science. While I was in school, I worked at a number of ranches, uh, one of which was Desert Ranches. And, um, you know, back then they didn't have a, a formal intern program, but I kind of came when I could and worked a little bit for Marty Smith, actually, up in um, up in Gainesville as much as I could and kind of worked myself through college in the early, early years actually building fence. And mm -hmm. one of the benefits of that is I ended up um, contracting with lots of different ranchers as I went around the state and got to meet a lot of people. And that's how I ended up getting, you know, jobs as I, I went through school. But um, anyway, after I graduated from University of Florida, I came here to, to Deseret, went to work for Paul Janot and um, started as a cowboy, worked as a cattle foreman, you know, ran a unit here. And a unit on Deseret is – Usually about 3,200 cows. There's a cattle foreman, two cowboys on each unit, and um, did that for a number of years. And then, and then Paul came to me one day and said, "Hey, if you ever, if you have ambitions to, to manage a ranch like this someday, you need to go back get more education." And there's this new thing called an MBA that you ought to take a look at. And uh, that was back when that started to become popular. So I went out to BYU and got a master's in business administration, and then came back to work as kind of what we call an area manager, and then over the years have um, eventually became general manager of this ranch. And then as we have expanded our operations around North America, uh, picked up additional operations, and really to the point now that uh, we recently have hired a general manager for this ranch, our operation up in North Florida, and then I manage what we call our cattle division. And it includes um, everything from cow-calf operations to, to feed yard out in southwest Kansas. And in 2010, Eric, uh, the ranch won the 2010 Environmental Stewardship Award. Mm -hmm. And uh, we bring some groups here to visit once in a while, and everybody is very impressed with the parallel programs that you have, mm -hmm. primarily on natural resources management. Mm -hmm. Could you please uh, mention some of those programs? Yeah, sure. No, you know, I think that... Um I mean, one of the things that we've always said is cow-cow production and natural resource manager kind of go kind of go hand in hand or hand in glove, so to speak. You don't have to think of them, you know, independent of one another. And um, so as we do our planning for the ranch, one of the things that we do is we try to organize our thoughts around really four main areas. One, one's our customer. The other is our business. Uh, the third one is our natural resources, you know, the resources that we have on the ranch. And then the fourth is an employee and try to make sure that we're planning, you know, strategically in each one of those areas. And so what we do, obviously, you know, you kind of live and die by how you manage the natural resources of the ranch. And um, 
So over the years, we've had pretty comprehensive programs. You know, one is our, our wildlife programs. Uh, we have biologists and what we call lease liaisons on staff, and we carefully manage game animals. But um, we also manage specifically some non-game species. We have uh, a number of different rookeries on the ranch. We've actually documented over 300 species of, of uh, wildlife on the ranch. And so we try to make sure that we're managing the place in such a way that um, – we carefully manage our game species and our non-game species. And I think just the very nature of cow-calf production, you know, if you do a good job managing a resource, um, you kind of end up with this mosaic of pastures, you know, forested uplands and, uh, and wetlands that create a lot of edge for wildlife. And so if you do a good job managing the resource, it, you almost don't have to do anything. The wildlife just thrive there. Do you know what I mean? Um, the other thing we've tried to do really carefully is manage the water resources on the ranch. And, um, you know, anytime we could, we try to utilize surface irrigation instead of pulling the water from the aquifer. Um, but we've also tried to manage our discharge carefully because the east side of the ranch uh, borders the St. John's River. And when we have major storm events, we can pump stormwater off of us onto the river. And the water is, is, is clean, but what we wanted to do is kind of ensure that it was um, really pristine before it went out on the St. John's River. So we started probably 25 years ago just building a series of uh, stormwater retention reservoirs on the east side of the ranch. Uh, the biggest is about 500 acres. We're just finishing up one we call East Point. That's about 325 acres. And in a sense, what they are is man-made wetlands. We pump in, we pump stormwater in one side. It's designed to have a resonance time and slowly work its way across, you know, and, and the natural, you know, wetland species, plant species that form um, will take up any nutrients, dissolve solids, will settle. And so when the water actually does make it out uh, to the St. John's, it's super pristine. You know, it's better, much better than the quality of the water in the river. And so... We tried to manage our water resources really carefully. We tried to manage the land really carefully, and then tried to manage the wildlife resources on the ranch uh, carefully over the years. More specifically on the the beef cattle production, yeah. you got a, a new program called Pasture Crafted Beef. Right. And could you please uh, describe to us yeah. what is that program title? Well, you know, as we went through our planning, we asked ourselves, what's something unique that we could do, and you know in the market and, and we have a fairly significant cow base when you look at our ranches in North America and so we made a decision that we were going to kind of buy our way up the supply chain and integrate our system and we felt like um, that would be a kind of unique thing that we could do because uh, we had a big enough cow base that we could pretty much supply one feed yard 100% so we bought a lot of stocker operations you know we've got stocker operations now in Kansas and in Uh, Texas, a few there, and in Oklahoma. And then we bought a feed yard, a uh, 42,000 head capacity feed yard in southwest Kansas. And so we're to the point now that um, we don't sell anything but finished steers and finished heifers. We keep all of our cattle. We run them through that uh, supply chain. And then we negotiated an agreement with uh, Cargill uh, Protein about a year and a half ago to, in a sense, for them to develop a brand that we would be the exclusive supplier for. And they went through a pretty extensive naming process, came up with the name Pasture Crafted. And so, you know, that brand will be exclusive to our supply chain, to the Desert supply chain. And they're in the process of, uh, of 
figuring out how to position that and how to market it. And really kind of expect it to roll out in 2018, early 2019. And um, it will be probably the only brand that has, um, you know, a supply chain that's owned from birth all the way to finish by one owner. And then also the work that we do genetically is, is feeds into that supply chain. Do you think that that product will be targeted to one region of the United States or how, how do you think they are? Yeah, I think what they'll end up doing is even, you know, our supply chain is fairly significant, but it's not big enough to supply a nationwide chain. So it'll either be a, a, a regional, regional chain or it will be, you know, a bigger company uh, or a bigger retailer that targets a specific region with that product. So I don't know for sure. We've had a number of meetings uh, with Cargill, uh, with our marketing group, and they're trying to kind of sort through exactly how to position it. But, um, you know, like I said, I think they'll have it ready to launch um, in a serious way. Probably, yeah, it's probably going to be early, early 2018, I think, is when they'll get it done. Mm -hmm. So we're excited about that. We think it'll be kind of unique. Mm -hmm. And uh, here at Deseret, you create uh, a breed that is a composite breed mm -hmm. with different yeah. crosses. Can you, uh, yeah, I yeah. think the name is Deseret Red. Right, right. And can you please describe the breed and what yeah. was the goal of creating yeah. the breed? Yeah. Yeah, let me, let me back up just a little bit and tell you what, you know, on a nationwide basis, we have two genetic nucleuses. We've got one in Utah that supplies our western ranches, and we've got one in Florida that supplies our southeast ranches. And... The ranches in the west are smaller, so we've decided to go with a composite bull out there, and it's a, a half Angus, quarter Simmental, quarter South Devon mix. And that's the material we send out to the ranches to, to breed. And so in Florida, we had Brangus, and we had Simbra, and then we had Brayford for a long time. And so we decided to create a similar breed here, but it's, it's a Brahmin-South Devon mix, and we call it Desert Red. And... Um, You know, so in a sense, it's uh, a Brahmin and a, and a South Devon, then back cross to a South Devon again. And so we end up with a three-quarter English quarter Brahmin. And we've tried to go a little bit lower than that. felt like we had uh, performance issues with our cow herd. Um, when we try to go a little bit higher, sometimes we have issues, you know, in how the, the carcasses perform in the packing plant. We feel like that, you know, that 25% to, to three-eighths, somewhere in that range is about where you need to be. And... And our cattle have performed really well in both locations, so we feel good about that. But part of the reason for the South Devon is, um, you know, Simbra obviously is, uh, you know, going to tend to perform um, more aggressively in the feed yard as far as its gain and conversion. You know, Brangus is going to be known for meat quality. And we felt like South Devon would probably lend itself well to meat quality but would be different than Angus. And so we'd maintain that heterosis. And we try to... You know, in Florida, we utilize a three-breed rotation with the with the Simbra, um, the Brangus, and the Desert Red um, to try to maximize our heterosis on that three. You know, because when you do the math, the three-breed rotation is about as good as you can get from a practical standpoint. Um, we would have done the same thing out west, but where the ranches are smaller, it's difficult to do that. We felt like our execution would be better utilizing this uh, three-breed composite instead of three-breed rotation. So that was the reason behind that. And there's actually, um, it's something that we started about six years ago and we've got a kind of what we call a nucleus herd established now. And then we, we utilized some embryo transfer and AI to try to turn it, 
generations on that nucleus hurt a little bit faster to get improvement faster. And then um, we send that seed material out to what we call multiplier herds at each of the other units, and they, they breed it and then produce bulls for themselves is how we've handled it. But that gives us some consistency because the entire supply chain flows through that one feed yard. And so to give us a fairly consistent product, we've tried to do it that way, if that makes sense. And uh, with the outcomes that you have now with the breed, do you believe that it's fulfilling the, the requirements to keep the replacement heifers here? So good quality replacement heifers and also they are performing well in the packing plant? Yeah, yeah. I think the, you know, the cattle here have done well. The packing plant, we're just starting to get some good data there. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's still to be determined. But I, I would be surprised. I mean, I, I, there's no reason why it shouldn't work, I guess, mm -hmm. is, is a good way to put it. So. Um, so anyway, yeah, we, we feel good about it. Well, we'll it's to be determined though. We, we know that we kind of know what our Simra will do and what our Brangus will do. And, and Desert Red is, is still, we think it'll do well. So, and do you think is this still an evolving process or it's a final product? Um, no, I mean, we'll continuously improve the breed. There's no doubt about that. The challenge was there's not a lot of breeders in South Devon. And we actually used a little bit of Red Pole in it too at the beginning. And because of the data on Red Pole, you know, tend to perform pretty well in subtropical climates. But we had to cast in that pretty far and wide to get seed material to start, you know, from Australia to all over the U.S. And once we got it here, now we can kind of close the herd and select from within. But um, it's going to take us a little bit to get there. So. And Eric, we are uh, heading to the end of our interview here. I have a few quick questions for you before we finish. Uh, can you tell me uh, two of your favorite forage species? Yeah. You know, we've tried a lot of things over the years at the ranch, and, you know, we've done a lot of work with Ona, and, um, so to speak. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's still well, the combination that's worked best for us is, is the Bahia grass and Mothria combination. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we've gone to is uh, we've managed the Bahia grass pretty aggressively in the spring and the summer. We'll, we'll spring fertilize them. We backed away from spring fertilizing for years and um, when the cost got so high, but we've seen our Bahia uh, fields begin to deteriorate a little bit over time. And so we've kind of upped the game. And I think, you know, we spring fertilize quite a bit now. Mm -hmm. um, started to get more aggressive on our weed control program again. And so, you know, we'll we'll be real aggressive with Bahia in the spring and the summer and then get real aggressive with Homothria. Just try to manage the Homothria through the summer and then get it grazed down and then fertilize it pretty aggressively in the fall, so to speak. I mean, we're mm -hmm. still not doing 100 pounds of end like we used to. We do uh, more like 60 now. But um, we'll fall fertilize that, you know, let it stockpile, and then utilize it through the winter. And that, you know, that's that's been a combination that's worked best for us. I, I wish I had something better to, to tell you, but we've tried lots of different things from roads grass to all kinds of grasses and they just haven't, they haven't held up over the years, you know, and there are some good Bermuda grasses, but you know, they tend to seem, they seem to be better on high input systems, you know, where you're haying or something versus pasture. And, um, you know, I guess what we're trying to do is manage these grasses at a moderate input level. You know, and, and we've in the last five years started utilizing some biosolids and found those to be really, really helpful because, um, you know, if you've got a homothria field or even a Bahia field and you put the biosolids out, um, 
you know, you seem to get about three years worth of benefit out of it. And I think you, um, you can go, um, with more of a nitrogen only program after that for a little while mm-hmm. without having to add phosphorus or potassium. But we have found that in places we haven't used biosolids and we've been nitrogen only, we've had to kind of go back to a more complete mix because we're just seeing some deterioration in our, in our mm-hmm. forage base. So, but that's something we've looked at real hard in the last few years is what do we, what can we do to, get our forage base to, to improve a little bit every year versus deteriorate a little bit. Mm-hmm. So. And we talk a little bit about cattle breeds, but mm-hmm. if you have to pick just two, mm-hmm. two cattle breeds that you take with you, that mm-hmm. you really like, can you <laughs> mention just two? Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's that's hard to say. You know, our system is based on, on crossbreeding and heterosis mm-hmm. and... Um, You know, the, the breeds that we have got the most development in, so the ones I probably like the best are the, are the Brangus and December, just because we've got years and years of selection. So when you go out and do like a, a final selection on our bulls, our replacement bulls each year, you know, those are definitely the ones, probably, probably December is the one that we have the most consistency in. You know, the bulls just look really good. They're a moderate frame, heavy muscle kind of animal, but, um, um, you know, the other animals that perform really well for us, um, we have uh, some terminal matings that we do. And, for instance, in our Texas ranch, we, we replace, we u- utilize females from the Florida ranch to replace that ranch, and then we terminal 100% of it to Angus bulls. And then we have a few other of our commercial units on the ranch here that we terminal to kind of grow the Angus bulls. And, And they just perform amazingly well in our feed yard. And, you know, they'll be in that four, four pound gain range and feed conversions under six. And then, um, you know, they'll, they'll be 85 to 90% choice. And so, I mean, probably our, our absolute best performing deal is when we can take our kind of three eighths type crossbred cattle and terminal made them, but, uh, to an Angus that fits in our system. But, you know, you can't, we can't do that everywhere because we start getting too much English as we, so we don't keep any replacements from that mating. But, so that would kind of be, those mixes would probably be my favorite. Okay. okay. And not, not related to cattle production, um, with your, uh, experience in leadership and, yeah, yeah. um, would you have any, a good book that you think yeah. that our listeners would enjoy reading? That will be related to leadership, administration, and agriculture. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have. I mean, I have. A, I've read a lot of things over the years. Um, one of some of my favorite stuff, and some of the stuff. There are two things that come to mind. One is um, over the years, I've read Harvard Business Review, and and I've I've kind of hand pulled some really good articles out of that magazine, and we use those as some of our leadership training bases here, but. There's an old article um, by Peter Drucker right before he died, and I thought he was a, a really good management consultant called um, What Makes an Effective Executive? Mm-hmm. And we've used that as a, as a training base here, and it's really an excellent article and really shaped a lot of that one article, I think, has in some ways shaped my style over the years. So I'd recommend that highly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the other one is we've had a lot of our young managers uh, – read the old Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's an excellent book. It was written back in the 19, early 1900s. Mm-hmm. But um, 
it's pretty timeless advice about learning to be effective with people because we find that you know a lot of the kids that come out of school or young men young women that come out of school they um, they've never experienced having supervised people before and that's probably a place they come out a little deficient you know it's just um, understanding how to deal with people how to be effective with people because you know you can be uh, a genius at everything else but if if you're a little bit of a wreck at dealing with people um, you'll kind of alienate yourself and not be very effective so we put a lot of effort into training people to to be effective as leaders but you know that one article I would I would really recommend highly and I think Dale Carnegie book and then we have our all of our trainees read this the Covey book how to or seven habits of highly effective people mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent book also mm -hmm. so anyway there's lots of others yeah. but those are you know over the years ones that that we tend to keep coming back to some thank you so that will complete our interview today I'd like to thank Eric for participating in the podcast today and I'll see you next time I am Joe Vendramini Joe what